right, guys, the weather's turning cooler. It's fall. There's a lot going on around here we want to tell you about. Yeah, a couple weeks ago, we had a Fairfax Kids recruitment event, and it was so good to see you guys come out for that. If you haven't gotten connected yet, you can still sign up to serve in Fairfax Kids, or there's so many other places you can serve. You can serve online or in person. If you're interested in doing that, go ahead and fill out the form online and sign up. Coming up October 10th, we have our next child dedication. If you weren't able to participate last time or have just made a decision that you want to do it this time, go online to register or find out more information. Guys, one of Fairfax Kids' favorite event, Trunk or Treat, is coming up on October 30th. We are so excited. If you want to come, you can register online for a time slot. There's also opportunity for you guys to host a trunk if you are interested. And we are accepting candy donations in our Fairfax Kids lobby. Um, There's going to be a monster there. You can feed the monster the candy. We are so excited to see you guys. If you have any questions about anything, you can sign up online. That's all we have for now. Let's turn this over to Rod. He's got a great message ready for us. All right. You guys doing okay? Doing good? Okay. Uh, So we have this thing at Fairfax that's called Global Cities. It's our uh, church planting arm uh, of Fairfax. And uh, we've identified global cities around the world, cities of influence, and have uh, been a part of planting or restarting churches in a number of those cities. And over the last 35 years, we've helped to restart or plant 35 churches in 35 different uh, global cities, and it's just been an amazing, amazing journey. And, um, and I got an opportunity this last week uh, to go and visit. Because of COVID and the pandemic and all of that, I haven't had a chance to visit some of our global cities' churches. And so I got a chance to go to three of the cities where we have churches that we've helped to uh, support and help to start or restart or encourage or whatever, and uh, Paris and uh, Hamburg, Germany, and uh, Madrid. And I just wanted to give you just a little bit of an update. God is doing some amazing things uh, in these cities and in these churches. In Hamburg, you see the picture there. Uh, Daniel Bartz, who is the the planting pastor, who's the second person from uh, the right there, uh, started that church uh, over 10 years ago. It's been an amazing journey of explosion of growth, church over 500 now, which is a a mega church in that context. And... uh, and we've been praying for years because they've been renting facilities and going from, uh, you know, facility to facility to facility, and, and just like God, you know, how are we gonna, how are we gonna find a place, afford a place, be able to do that in a city like Hamburg? It's very, very expensive. And um, one of the things that has been happening over the last year during the middle of this pandemic is that the leader of the denomination that they're a part of, which is a small denomination in Germany, has just seen what is going on with the church with Daniel. And just said, I, I want what's happening in, in Hamburg and in your church and the Hamburg Project, I, I want that to happen throughout our whole denomination. So they gave the church, they gave the church their flagship building in the center of Hamburg. It's, uh, we got a, yeah, a picture of the church there. Uh, sanctuary, this is not like a little church. You can't really tell. The sanctuary seats over 1,000 people, 1,100 people, and attached to the building, to the church building, is an apartment complex of 68 apartments that the church has also basically been gifted as well to be able to utilize those. It's an amazing, an amazing story, and it's all located right in the center of Hamburg, right in the harbor district of Hamburg, we, we estimate that the cost 
of the property they've been given in that location is somewhere between 25 and $30 million that they have been given for the work of the kingdom to expand what God is doing in Hamburg and throughout Germany. And uh, they're starting a church planting network that is going to be a part of that, going to utilize probably some of those uh, apartment buildings. And it's just amazing. They're planting a new church that we're connecting with, uh, a transcultural church that is going to be made up of folks from all different kinds of cultures. And so it's just really cool what God is doing. That was the first place that I went, or one of the places that I went. The other one was in Paris, where uh, Samir is the pastor. Samir is also second from the right there. Nathan Tapman is on the right. He's our regional coordinator in uh, Europe and the Middle East. And uh, this is a church that was started five years ago with a vision of reaching uh, refugees and immigrants, not, not just with acts of compassion where you kind of go do things, make feel good about yourself because you're helping some folks out, and then that's kind of it. No, they wanted to they wanted to build a church of refugees and immigrants where people came to know Christ as their Savior, became enfolded into the body of Christ, and were a part of the mission themselves. And that is exactly what has happened. Lives are being transformed. People are being baptized. Most are coming from Muslim background. It's just incredible what God is doing. They're having a huge impact in the city. And one of the, Samir's visions was to have a number of houses where folks from different cultures, refugees from different cultures, could live together, grow together, experience Christian community together. And um, a wealthy guy in Paris who's from Lebanon, which is where Samir is from, Samir is an immigrant from Lebanon, um, had a house, like a seven-bedroom house, and uh, basically at little cost provided the house for Samir and for the church. I think we have a picture of the house and uh, it's a huge place right in the center of, uh, of Paris. And living in the house are refugees from Iraq, Iran, Kuwait, Egypt, Colombia, and the United States. And, uh, and then a person from France that's also living there as well. It's an amazing story. And um, it's something that I think is going to be able to be replicated throughout Paris. And uh, so it's just so exciting what's happening. And then the other place where I was at was Madrid, which is our newest partner. And uh, there's a picture on the right there of Nathan Tapman again. On the left is uh, Alejandro de Francisco, who is our church planter there. Alejandro has an amazing story. He and his wife, Carmen, uh, were communists. They went to Russia. They were trained in Russia. He's a physicist, got his PhD as a physicist, and uh, came to Jesus, started planting churches in Florida, and then ended up in Madrid, and is a part of a church planting initiative that's taking place. And I think we have a map. Is they, have a, they have a vision to plant. They've already helped to plant three churches already in Barcelona and Madrid. Their vision over the next couple of decades is to plant churches in 14 of the most influential cities in Spain, and in some of those cities, multiple churches, and just to expand the kingdom in Spain. It's just amazing, amazing, amazing. And I just wanted to give you just, I wanted to do two things. One, I just wanted you to see what God is doing but I also just wanted to say thank you because so much of this is made possible because of your generosity, your support, the way that you support this place. You live generous lives. We as a church are generous in giving that to others throughout the world, and uh, we're just so thankful for that. So can we just give the Lord a praise offering for what he's doing? Very cool. 
All right, so we're in this fourth week of this uh, series called Journey to Freedom, the study of Exodus. And as I've mentioned every week, Exodus is a book, um, Jess was talking about second book of the Bible, all about the pursuit of freedom, all about being set free from things that would enslave us and keep us from living the life that God has created us to live. Like God has created us to live this, this kind of life that he's, he has formed us for and that oftentimes we become enslaved by things that keep us from living the life that God created us to live. And it's not just kind of freedom in the sense of like not being under the control of someone or under the, the, uh, you know, the influence of someone. It's about being set free to serve God. That's the kind of freedom that we're talking about in the book of Exodus. Last week, I thought Jess did an amazing job dealing with all the things that God does to convince Pharaoh, the, the king of Egypt, to convince him that he should set the people of Israel free and how the Passover meal not only commemorates kind of this final act of God's protection, but it's also an invitation. I thought Jess did such a beautiful job of describing the invitation, the description of eating this Passover meal with your sandals on and the staff in your hand, like ready to go, because it's an invitation given by God to leave Egypt and all that it represents. And if you didn't get a chance to hear that message last week, check it out online because it's a fantastic message and kind of gives a real kind of perspective on where we're going with this whole series, which brings us to where we are today. The Hebrews do indeed, the Israelites, they leave the Nile Valley. They travel many, many miles back toward their ancient homeland of Canaan. And now they get to the first physical barrier that they have to deal with in order to, to get home. And that's the Red Sea. And meanwhile, back in the Nile Valley, Pharaoh and his officials have changed their mind again about letting the people of Israel go. And Jess thought did a good job last week of talking about how Pharaoh kept changing his mind. Like he said, no, 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 I'm not going to let you go. And then awful stuff would happen. And he'd say, okay, I'm going to let you go. And then when they get past kind of the pinch point, which so often then happens, they're like, oh, I changed my mind and I'm not going to let you go. And he does this over and over again. Well, now they're gone. They've, they've, they're miles away. It's been days and days and days of travel. And Pharaoh now has said, oh, made a mistake. Shouldn't have let them go. We've lost our, our servants. We've lost our ability to produce all of this. And so he, he and his uh, officials basically decide to go after him. This is what we're told in verse five. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, what have we done? I don't know about you, but I've made a lot of those decisions too, where the next day it's like, what have I done? And uh, says, we have let the Israelites go, have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and he took his army with him and he took 600 of the best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt. I'm not sure what those chariots were like, but anyway, the 600 best and then all the rest and with the officers over all of them and the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh just means that he allowed Pharaoh's heart, which was hardened. He allowed Pharaoh to live out that hardness of his own heart. He hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses, chariots, horsemen, troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Pi-Heroth and opposite Baal-Zephon. So Pharaoh decides to go after the Hebrews with 600 chariots. And chariots, just to give you some perspective, chariots were like the weapon of the day. 
They were like the most destructive weapon of the day or this terrible instrument of death. So Pharaoh is not just out to recapture the Israelites. If they don't succumb to um, his desire to enslave them again, he is ready to destroy them. He is ready to wipe them from the face of the planet. His basic message, like the essence of what, Sa- what Pharaoh is doing, is he's basically going after them saying, serve me or die. Make me your master or die. Like give your life to me or die. And, and really this is like, this is not the main point that I'm going after today, but that's what happens with anything that you're enslaved to. Like anything that becomes something that controls your life, it's like serve me or die. Give your life to me or die. Now, the Israelites realize what's happening, and they immediately begin to second-guess their decision to leave Egypt. This is what we're told in verse 10. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified, and they cried out to the Lord. And they said to Moses, now this is what's interesting. It's completely revisionist history here, okay? They said to Moses, was it because, and I love the sarcasm. I'm a sarcastic guy. I love sarcasm in scripture. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? In other words, were there not enough graves there to bury us that you had to bring us out here for us to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, they did not, by the way, didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians. It would be better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. So the Israelites are trapped between Pharaoh's army and the Red Sea. And in the midst of this incredible dark situation, How do they respond? They respond by trying to rewrite the narrative of what has brought them to this point. They're now trying to, they're they're under pressure. They're in this difficult situation. And now they start trying to rewrite the narrative of what brought them to this point. First, they try to rewrite the narrative of their past. They say to Moses, Moses, didn't we say to you when we were in Egypt, right? Leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. In other words, Moses, we were fine in Egypt. We loved Egypt. We loved being enslaved to the Egyptians. Like, we loved it. And we told you that. In fact, what's interesting, in chapter 16, which we don't have time to look at today, but two chapters uh, further, in chapter 16, the Israelites actually try to create this narrative about how they weren't actually slaves when they were in Egypt. They talk about how when they were in Egypt, they, they just sat around and had all the meat that they wanted to eat and everything was awesome and they were having the time of their lives and they convinced themselves that while they were in Egypt, they were actually living the good life. Like Egypt wasn't horrible. Egypt was fantastic. By the way, we do the same thing with the things that we, that enslave us. Like we try to rewrite the narrative about the things that enslave us, right? That, that I'm not really enslaved by the pursuit of money, or I'm not really enslaved by my need to succeed, or I'm not really enslaved by this destructive behavior that I keep doing. Like We try to rewrite the narrative, too, about the things that we're enslaved to. Of course, the narrative that the Israelites are constructing is not what happened at all. It is delusional. It, has, it is not in touch with reality. They were brutally oppressed 
in Egypt. They told Moses over and over again that they wanted to leave, that they didn't want to be slaves anymore, that they didn't want to be under the oppressive leadership of the Pharaoh anymore. They didn't want that. In fact, we're told in chapter four that when the Israelites found out that through Moses, God was going to deliver them from their Egyptian oppressors, this is how they respond. Verse 29, Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites, and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people, and they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them, about them being enslaved and about getting them out of it, was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and they worshiped the Lord. The Israelites wanted to leave Egypt in the worst possible way. They would do anything to get out of Egypt. In fact, God had, the fact that God had chosen Moses to deliver them from Egyptian bondage was something they had been waiting for. And when they realized that God is going to make all that possible, they bow down and worship God. They wanted to get out of Egypt. But now they're denying the fact that they even ever wanted to leave Egypt. Their current circumstances are causing them to try and rewrite the narrative about their past. The Israelites are exhibiting some of the same traits that, traits that we exhibit when we have made decisions to follow God, when we have made decisions that put ourselves in the yes position to God, and then we find ourselves in a really difficult situation, like things are not working out the way that we thought they were going to work out. So like there's some decision that we make, there's something we sense God is calling us to do, calling us to be something that he wants us to participate in, whatever it is. And we put ourselves in the yes position to God. We do that. And we expect things are going to go this way, this way, this way, because we've been obedient to God. And we've said yes to God. And this is how it's all going to turn out. And then it doesn't turn out the way that we thought it was going to turn out. Like we do something very generous and it doesn't turn out the way that we thought it was going to turn out. Like our inclination is to do the same thing that the Israelites are doing here. Our inclination is to go back to Egypt. It's to go back to the way things were. In fact, we often begin to idealize Egypt. Like Egypt wasn't so bad. The way things were wasn't so bad. May not have been awesome, but at least I knew what to expect. Like we begin to idealize Egypt. And some of you may actually be feeling that way right now. That you sensed God calling you to do something. You sense God calling you to participate in his kingdom in a certain way, whatever it is, and you said yes. Uh, maybe he was calling you to take on some kind of new responsibility, some new ministry, some new thing that he wanted you to do. Maybe he was calling you to go somewhere to make a move. Maybe he was calling you to break your bondage to, to money or to your possessions by living a more generous life. Uh, he may have been calling you to stop some destructive behavior that was enslaving you. Whatever it was, you responded. But now things are not going exactly the way that you thought that they would go. Like you thought, wow, I made this decision. I was obedient to God. I said yes. I, I started being more generous with my money. I, I started changing my behavior. I started doing this. And like, I thought this would happen. I thought I'd be generous and God would just pour out a ton of resources to me. I, I thought I would stop this behavior and all of a sudden my life would just be perfect. Whatever it is, life's not going exactly the way that you thought that it would go. And now you're second guessing the decisions that you've made. You're wondering if maybe you should go back to Egypt. Don't. That's the worst decision 
that you could possibly make. Here's the biblical principle. Don't let the darkness of the moment cause you to question what God called you to do in the light. Like God oftentimes calls us to do something in the light that is so clear. It's so obvious that this is what God wants. It's so obvious that this is what God is calling us to do. And then we get into the darkness and we begin to second guess what God has called us to do. Don't let the darkness cause you to second guess what God has called you to do in the light. Secondly, the Israelites try and rewrite the narrative concerning the options that they have in this moment, right? They say, it would be better, it would be better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. In other words, they are saying, we've only got two options here. Our two options are serve Pharaoh, be slaves, or die in the desert. Those are our two options. And between the two options that we have, we're going to choose to serve Pharaoh. We think it'd be better to serve Pharaoh, to be slaves to Pharaoh, than to die in the desert. We have two options, and this is the one that we are going to choose. Now, think about that. God has just used 10 plagues, and Jess talked about this so beautifully last week, has just used 10 plagues to convince Pharaoh to let his people go. God has just given irrefutable evidence of his power, his commitment to his people. God has just brought the most powerful political entity on the planet to its knees. That has just taken place. So you would think that the Israelites would realize that becoming slaves or or dying in the desert are not their only two options. You would think that they would be saying, well, God just performed 10 miracles, like bring on number 11, like bring on the next thing, because we've just seen God work over and over and over again. You would think that would be their disposition. God has done this. God has done this. God did this. Like he's brought us to this point. He's been so faithful. You would think that they would say, okay, there's been these 10 amazing miracles. God's going to now bring on the 11th, but that's not what they do. God is not even in the equation. Think about that. They aren't even asking God to do anything. They cry out to God, but they really don't cry out to God asking him to do anything. They are standing on the banks of the Red Sea. God has miraculously brought them out of Egypt, but they are still slaves. They are slaves to fear. They are slaves to Whatever they're feeling in that moment, they are slaves to delusional thinking. They are slaves to their circumstances. Things aren't going exactly as they planned, and all of a sudden, everything is terrible. Things aren't going exactly as they planned, and all of a sudden, there is no hope. It's total despair. Like, there's no way. There's only two options here. Either we stay as slaves or we die in the desert. And folks, I think sometimes we do the same thing. I think sometimes I do the same thing. Like we find ourselves faced with a difficult situation and we just, even though we know God has done amazing things in our life, we just take God out of the equation. We think that all we have are these two options, that so often the decisions that we make, they're like binary decisions, right? It's either this or this. We either have this option or this option, like these two things. Either die in the desert or become slaves again. Either marry this guy or be alone forever. 
either hang on to all my money or become destitute, either medicate my pain or live in pain my whole life. Like it's either this or this. But God always gives us other options. The God who moved mountains in the past can do it again. We sing song about that. The God who moves mountains can do it again. The God who parted the Red Sea can do it again. The God who rained down manna from heaven can do it again. The God who raised Jesus from the dead can do it again. But we have to make space in our lives for God to do that work. We have to choose to bring God into the equation. Our part is not to do the miraculous stuff. Our part is not to find the solution. Our part is to give space for God to do his thing. Our, our part is to give space for God to show up and to show off. Our, our, our part is to give space for God to do it again and to do it again and to do it again. Like that's our part. And that's what Moses does in this moment. Moses is, fa is facing the exact same set of circumstances that the rest of the Israelites are facing, right? It's not like the rest of the Israelites are facing these really, really tough situations and Moses is like in a totally different situation. No, he's facing exactly the same thing that they're facing, but his response is totally different. Look at what he says, verse 13. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid, stand firm, you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. Think about the boldness of that statement. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. You need only to give God space to do what God does. You need only to be willing to allow God to be a part of the equation of what is going on here. In the midst of these incredibly frightening circumstances, Moses is calm, he's courageous, he's in control. Why? Because he's convinced that the God who spoke to him through a burning bush, the God who's performed miracle after miracle after miracle up to this point, is still at work. He's convinced that God has not brought them this far just to abandon them. He's convinced that God has already moved so many mountains to get to this point that he will do it again. And God does. What happens next is like the heart of not only this chapter, but in many respects, the heart of the book. It's what's been memorialized in movies and books and all kinds of things over the years. This is what happens next, starting in verse 19. Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud, cloud which was guiding them, also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. And throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side, the Egyptian side, and light to the other side, the Hebrew side. So neither went near the other all night long. So the, the cloud that guided them by day and the fire that guided them by night becomes this kind of safety protection that God uses to keep the Egyptian army at bay until the next thing happens. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And all that night, the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into a dry land, and the waters were divided. And the Israelites went through the sea on, ground, on dry ground with a wall of water on the right and on the left. 
And the Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. And during the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army, and he threw the army into confusion. He made the wheels of their chariots come off so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. And then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and at daybreak, the sea went back to its place. And when the Israelites saw the great power that the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. Now, so many preaching points there, right? We don't have time to like talk about all the different things that come out of that passage. But one of the things I want you to notice in this narrative is that there is this definitive moment of escape that takes place. The moment Pharaoh sets out with his chariots and his horsemen and his army and all that in pursuit of the Israelites, the moment he sets out to do that, he puts the Israelites under a sentence of death. He condemns them to death. And as long as the Hebrews are on this side of the sea, they are under that condemnation. But the moment they walked through that dry seabed, the moment they got to the other side of the Red Sea, they were no longer under that condemnation. Pharaoh had absolutely no power over them. In a moment, everything changed. In a moment, they were free. John... um, In his gospel, the gospel of John, he uses the imagery of the Red Sea and God providing a path to safety and to freedom and to salvation. He uses it to describe and to kind of visualize what happens when a person puts their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. He says it this way in John 5, verse 24. I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life has eternal life, like has it in that moment, and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. That's the imagery of the Red Sea that he's pulling from, that his hearers would have have recognized. They have passed over. They have crossed over from death to life. The gospel, unlike all other religions, the gospel says that because of Christ, there can be a moment where everything changes. There can be a moment where you are set free from the things that enslave you. There can be a moment where you are shouldering all of the guilt and the shame and the burdens of your failures. And then in a moment, you can be set free from all of that. Now, being set free, like experiencing God's saving grace, Becoming a follower of Jesus, whatever phrase you want to use, it doesn't mean that all of a sudden there is this immediate change of character, right? The Bible reminds us that that a change of character, like it's this lifelong process. The, the, The Bible refers to it as sanctification. This process of becoming more and more and more like Jesus. This process of of our behaviors more and more reflecting Christ, of our attitudes more and more reflecting Christ, that there is this process of sanctification that's a lifelong 
process that, that never ends to the moment that we get to death's door. Like we are always in the process of allowing God to transform us and to change us and to, to make us more and more like Jesus. So it's not that being set free, experiencing God's grace means that all of a sudden, all of that, there's this immediate change of character. It's not that your character changes in a moment. It's that your status changes in a moment. You cross over from death to life. You go from slave to free. You go from condemnation to no condemnation. The apostle Paul puts it this way. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And no one understood that better than the apostle Paul, right? Because for Paul, his slave master had become his moral righteousness, his uh, Phariseeism, his, his idea that he could do the right thing at the right time in every situation. That had become like his slave master. But then Paul ends up being the guy who destroys so many people's lives. The guy who does things that actually leads to their death. And all of a sudden, his view of himself begins to unravel. And in Romans 7, you see Paul embracing the reality of what he's done. Embracing the fact that he has failed at that which he wanted to accomplish the most. But instead of collapsing under the guilt of all that, Paul embraces the forgiveness and freedom that is his in Christ. And some of you... Whether you're watching online, here in the blue seats, out in the great room, the hair, wherever, some of you like need to experience that freedom today. I'm not talking about the process of growth. It's like today you need to experience that freedom. You need to be set free from the things that are condemning you. You, you need to cross over from death to life. You need, to, you need to cross over from enslaved to free. You need to cross over from condemnation to no condemnation. And it doesn't mean that all the character issues will just magically go away and all of a sudden you won't be dealing with it. It doesn't mean that at all. It does mean that your status has changed. It means that your past has been forgiven and it means that your future has been secure. And some of you may be saying, well, I know that at some level, but it always feels like I don't have enough faith to really make that kind of decision where there can be that kind of immediate reality where I go from death to life, where I go from enslaved to free, where I go from condemned to, to no longer under condemnation. It doesn't feel like I have enough faith for that to happen. Like I think about that, I process that, I sometimes talk with others, I just don't feel like I have enough faith really to make that decision. But I just wanna say to you, it's not about the quality of your faith, it's about the object of your faith. I'm sure there were all levels of people of all kinds of faith levels of the Israelites who were going through on that dry bed with those walls of water all around them. I mean, it was hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people. They were not all at the exact same level of faith. 
that I'm sure there were those who were walking through on that dry seabed who were thinking, wow, this is awesome. Look at what God is doing. This is another miracle. God is incredible. We can trust God, all of that. And there was others who were probably thinking, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. This is going to come in. They're going to get out. I'll be the last one. I'm going to die. Like There were probably people at all different levels of faith. It wasn't the quality of their faith that got them to the other side. It was the object of their faith. Whatever faith they had, little bit of faith, a lot of faith, mustard seed of faith, whatever amount of faith they had, they put it in the one who was fighting for their freedom. And folks, that's what Jesus was doing when he died for us on the cross. Like he was fighting for our freedom. He was burying the enemy in the flood of God's righteousness. And whatever faith we have, big, small, medium, whatever, when we put our faith in Jesus, he will set you free. You will cross over to the other side. And we can cross over to the other side in a moment. Doesn't mean that the journey is over. Doesn't mean that God isn't, doesn't still need to do things in our lives, but we can cross over in a moment. And I, I just wanna, this isn't the end. Don't get excited. Don't leave because I'm praying, okay? But I just wanna pray for some folks today and then, and then I wanna wrap this up. So let's just pray. God, I just wanna pause in the middle of this. I just wanna pray for those who are, who are in this space or watching online or wherever they are hearing this, maybe hearing it later uh, during the week and, and they, 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 they clicked into this and they're watching this, Lord, whoever it is who needs to cross over today, who needs to go from death to life, who needs to, to go from unforgiven to forgiven, who, who needs to go from living under condemnation and shame and guilt to no condemnation, Lord, that needs to experience your freedom, who needs to move from, from being enslaved to being set free, raised to life in Christ. Lord, we know that that can happen in a moment, and we pray that this is the moment that for some who are listening to this, who are in this space or listening to this, Lord, that this will be the moment that they say, yes, I believe Christ in what you have done for me on the cross in the freedom that you have provided, the forgiveness that you have made possible. I no longer wanna live on, on this side of the Red Sea. I wanna cross over and experience the freedom that is mine in Christ. So I say yes to what Christ has done for me on the cross, and I make a definitive decision to follow you today. In the name of Christ, I pray. And everyone said, amen. Can we give the Lord a praise offering for that? Okay, that's awesome. God's at work. I'm convinced God's at work. One last thing I want you to notice. The Israelites, with all of their frailties, all of their inconsistencies, all of their moments of faithlessness, all of that, after they're set free, after they cross over, like they didn't always walk in that freedom. They didn't always 
They didn't always live out the freedom that was, they had to learn to live out the freedom that was theirs in Christ. And sometimes they did it, and it's amazing when they did it, and sometimes they failed miserably at it. And we're gonna get at that as we look through the rest of the book of Exodus. As you look through the rest of the Old Testament, you see that sometimes they lived out the freedom that was theirs, sometimes they failed miserably to do that. And the same is true for us. Like one of the biggest challenges of following Jesus is living out the freedom that is already yours in Christ. It's one of the biggest struggles I have. It's one of the biggest struggles that I know that many of you have. It's living out the freedom that is already yours in Christ. Because even though you have crossed over, even though you're on the other side of the Red Sea, you still find yourself listening to the voices on the other side. The voices that are saying, serve us or die. The voices that are trying to get you to forget who you are in Christ. The voices who are trying to get you to lose sight of your identity in Christ. The voices that consume you with anger. The voices that keep bringing up your past and your failures. The voices that keep saying, you think you're free, but you're not really free, and you will never be free. Those voices. And you have to stop listening to those voices. You have to keep reminding yourself that you are on the other side of the Red Sea, that you have crossed over, that those voices have no control over you anymore. Because in Christ, everything has changed. In Christ, you are holy. In Christ, you are blameless. In Christ, you are spotless. In Christ, you are beautiful. In Christ, you are the beloved. In Christ, you are a child of God. Like that's who you are. Regardless of what the voices say, that's who you are in Christ. So claim who you are, live out who you are, and walk in the freedom that is yours in Christ. There is freedom that is yours in Christ. So walk in the freedom that is yours in Christ because you're on the other side of the sea. God, we are so thankful for the freedom that is ours in Jesus. And we're so thankful for what you have done for us. We think about how this story just points to a bigger story. It just points to a bigger act of deliverance when you gave your life by dying for us on the cross so that we could cross over from death to life, so that we could go from being enslaved to being set free, so we could go from being condemned to no condemnation. And so, Lord, we give you thanks for those who perhaps made decisions today to, to cross over and to accept your forgiveness and Lord, we pray that we would walk in that freedom, that we would claim that freedom, that we would embrace that freedom, that we would live out the freedom that is ours in Christ Jesus. In the name of Christ, we pray the one who sets us free, amen and amen and amen. Can you give the Lord a praise offering today? Wow.